Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Today, we welcome Leanne Hornsey, the EVP and Chief People Officer at Palo Alto Networks. And Palo Alto is a global cybersecurity leader working to further secure digital transformation. And before Palo Alto, Leanne worked at a few companies you may have heard of, including a little software company called Google, SoftBank, and, and this taxi company, what's it called? Oh, Uber, yes, disrupting uh, the rideshare industry. And Leanne's been heading the people operations at HR at each of these massive operations for decades, and is widely recognized as one of the world's preeminent practitioners in people ops, organization, and leadership development. So let's do this. Let's dig into Leanne's incredible background and story and tons of wisdom that she's about to share. Let's do this. Leanne, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. I don't know how wise I'll be, but it's great to be here. Oh, I, I, I doubt that. Let's let's get it going here. So, you know, before we even get into, you know, your your we'll call it current uh, role in, in leading people, um, you had a life before that. And I think it was what was that 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 company that we used to order those CDs from, right? BMG? BMG right? Sony, yeah. <laughs> I worked in the music business for quite a long time. So let's talk about, you know, that that early career and, and what drove you to that early? You know, what was kind of that impetus, you know, coming out of university and saying, you know, I want to get into the music industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you ask any 21-year-old and uh, they'll give you the same answer. Of course, everyone, not everyone, many people want to work in the music industry. Um, the idea excited me, it drew me, it meant that I learned many, many, many things that held me in good stead for later in life. Um, I worked with a lot of creatives. Working with creatives, as everybody will know, is very different from working, for example, with engineers. So it gave me... a. Uh, um, a really good background and understanding of breadth of people. Um, it gave me credibility when I walked into parties. It gave me everything that I wanted between the ages of 21 and 30. I mean, you know, that's what's not to like. Um, so I also learned a great, great, great deal. You know, when you're, you know, I, I don't want to sort of over-egg the working with artists or the name dropping, but when you're working with people whose career is so very different from what I do today right. in the tech industry, and you see the total person and the journey they're going through as, as their life becomes their work through music, you learn a great deal about people. And it was a huge grounding for me, not so much in terms of understanding business processes and IQ and all that stuff, but in terms of building deep EQ, uh, it was second to none in my view. I love it. And I certainly appreciate that perspective, but let's kind of flip the coin there. What was a, an early mistake that you made while at BMG? that maybe you could look back on now and you're like, you know what, I'm glad I made that mistake early on in my career because it really helped me course correct. Maybe a way that you thought, maybe preconceived notions, maybe the way you interpreted or, or your practice. 
Oh, gosh, I can think of many. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I always ask the question, by the way, in interviews, tell me about something you screwed up. Um, and it's very interesting watching people's response because not only does it tell you something about them, it tells you about their level of humility. <laughs> and believe me, Huge. along the way, so many, I nearly said shit tons, but so many screw ups. Um, in the music business, I made one very fundamental one pretty early on, which was one that I really try have never to do now. Um, I made assumptions. You know, it is extremely stupid in my view, and so easy to do, to walk into an organization making assumptions about people because of their role, people mm. because of what they do, people because of the industry that you're in. I walked into the music business, you know, having um, a good sense, I thought at the time, <laughs> of strategy and business and where life was going and process. And I had to unlearn it super quick because I, you know, trying to lay it on these people that were doing very different things in very different space, proved to be extraordinarily erroneous. Um, and it was a really good early screw up because That's I learned boring. from that time, don't ever walk into one organization, even if they're in the same sector, the same industry, making the assumption that culture, the way people work is the same. It just isn't. And it lacks humility to not spend the time to understand the company that you're joining. It was a really, really important lesson for me. That's a tremendous lesson. And, and, and you hit a trigger word for me that I've been thinking about a lot, the concept of unlearning. Mm -hmm. And then that is a sign of maturity as you go through your career. There is a million things that all of us needed to unlearn. I mean, I've had to unlearn and unpack and rewind yes. so many things that were assumptions to your point. Yes. yes. But when I unlearned them, right, I was able to have that humility and self-awareness to say, you know what, that's, that's not right. I need to course correct here, readjust and, and relearn or learn it the right way. And that's been a tremendous... Um, growth motivator in, in my personal journey. So let's talk about your transition into the, the world of people. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was a CEO at BMG who got you into HR. How did, how, how did that story work? <laughs> oh, gosh, um, it's been embarrassing, really. Um, it was it was the CEO. And um, I loved that man. He's actually passed since but I loved him to death. He was he was probably the first manager I had that I just thought was just the most wonderful person. Why? Well, he was super, super honest and authentic. And he came to me one day and he said, I've been thinking about you for a, a while, Leanne. You're bloody good at what you do, but you are far too bloody tough. You're far too demanding. Mm. You're far too driving. Um, you're, you're, you're singular in your focus. And you need to learn the art of leading people. And I just basically said, no way. He said, I want you to run HR for a while. And, you know, to me, it was like asking me to stick a knife in my heart. I was a business person driving revenue, driving artists, driving top line. Um, and he said, no, I really want you to do it. And I promised hmm. you, if you do it for a year, if after a year you hate it, we'll put you back in the business. And so with some significant trepidation, because I trusted him so much, um, I moved into HR. And the long, long and short of it is, a year later, he did come back to me and regularly in between and go, how's it so going? And honestly, um, I wanted to stay after a year. It really so, shocked so, me. So, Liam, what do you think it was that he's, I mean, looking back at it now, we call it Monday morning quarterback, right? Like looking back on it now, you are a people leader. Yeah. What, do you, what were those traits that he saw in you that said, you know what? I want to put Leanne in this position of people. I think honestly, and, and it's hard to answer that question without sounding a little arrogant, and I never no, want to. No, we're not. <laughs> I, I, I was pretty young, and he saw that I, he believed, whether it's true or not, that I had the potential to be a general manager. 
Um, and his view was I had the diligence, I had the push, I had the sort of internal motivation. You know, some people talk about it like grit to just sort of do it. But, you know, I didn't take prisoners in, in, in just doing it. And he knew that I wouldn't be successful unless I learned how to do it through other people and with other people as well. So I think it was that I was very blessed in that he saw something in me that maybe others wouldn't have done and was willing to, and honestly was willing to take a huge risk. I mean, putting me in charge of the totality of the people function. I mean, I wasn't like some junior person. He gave me the whole lot. Now you're a chief operational. You moved <laughs> up to COO. I know. And he took such a risk on me. Um, That's huge. But you know, it was, it was credit to him, not to me. So let's talk about that, taking a chance and risk on people. Do you think he was the one that truly instilled that in you as you move through your career? Like, you know, because a lot of leaders, you know, I, I mean, I from my perspective, I think that's a huge trait of a leader is having trust and faith in someone. When you see something in them and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I believe in you and I know you could do this and I know you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm betting on you. I think it is um, a huge trait of a great leader. I think there's one other bit that I would add, though. Um, it absolutely is the role of the leader to spot those people that could do broader, different um, the second thing that I would say, though, is that the vast majority of people I know, and I see this day in, day out, they want to do this. They want to move up. Always they want to move up. It's like the human condition. And actually, I think society has forced us more to want to move up. I really... Status. Yeah. And it is all about status and self-esteem. I really try to instill into my kids, for example, which tells you it's true. Forget the moving up for a bit. You're 23, for goodness sake, move across and learn more. Because if you're, for example, in HR and you're 23, I'm making 23 up, right? You then go a little bit up at 25 and 27 and 29. You're not learning more. You're learning a little bit more and you're learning deeper. I'm a huge believer because I'm a product of it, right? Work across lots of different functions, get lots of different experiences, and then choose where you want to be to move up. And let's you've got tons of blooming time. This, let's, let's pause on this for a moment because I want everyone listening to really take a deep breath and, and, and listen to what Leanne just said there. And it's hard because I think in this world of instant gratification, especially for, for younger folks, Xennials, Gen Zs, yes. they, they see, you know, the, the Ferraris and the cars and the, yeah. you know, the jet planes there. And they, they you know, they, they just think instant satisfaction, instant gratification. But when you think about your career, you know, think about it more holistically. You know, think about all those pieces that you need to build in your in your in your tool belt right in your toolkit to have with you and that's tremendous advice so you worked your way up you know uh virgin media lastminute.com group and let's talk about a little company you landed at called google um i want to talk a little bit about do you recall the hiring process at google oh, God, and you know the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the gauntlet right I've, I've heard it be called the google gauntlet right that's something i've heard before too but talk a little about the process that you went through mm -hmm. and some of the good the bad and the ugly that you apply or don't apply in your current process Okay, uh, I'm not even sure that your listeners stroke viewers will even believe what I'm about to say. Well, we'll so, find out. <laughs> it's only one it's, I was a chief people officer at the time. And so, you know, I was at the top of a company I was working at and had been a chief people officer twice um, and a COO. Google approached me and basically said, hey, you know, we'd like you to work at Google. Well, who wouldn't be flattered? Um, we would like you to work at Google, then turned into a process that lasted, I, I truly believe, in fact, I know it to be true, May of one year through December of that year. And it involved 18 different interviews, 18, 18. 
Um, I was in Europe at the time. The first set of interviews were in Europe. I was then flown over to Mountain View to go through another set of um, interviews. Uh, at the time, Google, and still now, hires back. We're talking 2006, just for everyone from a time reference perspective. 2005. 2005. You weren't hired until January, yes, correct. Yeah, 2005. So during this period, 18 interviews across two continents, um, including flying. And then at the end of it, I was never really told what the role was. I was just, you know, they used this term at the time, good for Google, which of course is very flattering because Google is such, at the time particularly, was such a phenomenon, of course, is still. And... Then at the end of this process, I was offered the role, but it was as a senior director. Now, you know, you think about the pecking order, you've got senior director, VP, SVP, EVP. I was sitting there as a C level, and they come in as this senior director. And back to this point about humility, I had to go through a really interesting, interesting decision moment because a the money wasn't what i thought it was going to be we really google shit tons of money and it was stocks no not even stocks the, the stock was Option. great but it wasn't what i've been earning honestly at the time okay um and i had to make this decision did i move to this absolutely brilliant company that i thought was on fire i loved its values i loved the people i met or did i stay where i wasn't be more senior and i took what you could say was a four level drop to move to google um, it then rectified itself and I moved up Google and all that stuff. But it was an interesting decision at that period in my life. Because so let's unpack, let's unpack that decision. Yeah, I mean, I made the decision based on the values of the company. I truly believed at the time Google was a good company trying to do good things. I loved the people I met. And I saw that I could seriously add value because I believed that I had different skills that would be complementary to the people that I met. I also... Whilst it was 18 interviews, and it isn't now, once I arrived at Google, we did a ton of work to reduce that to four interviews, which is oh the standard God. now. I actually sort of revered the process because it proved that Google was operating by true consensus. Everybody was, I was going to work. Everybody had to say yes. Uh, you, you had to get a unanimous yes to a certain yeah. point. And I have adopted that ever since, by the way. Every company I have left subsequent to Google, I have stole with pride, not the 18, but the four, of the Google process. Consensus. At consensus. I believe in it totally. You know, I learned a few things at Google. It's the biggest thing I learned. Their hiring process, now it's not quite so <laughs> elongated and, and painful, is amazing. But think about your time during that interview process. Was there ever a point where you're like, I've had enough. Why can't they make a decision? Why is it taking 18? Why is it taking so yeah. long? Yeah. I mean, there was, but but they were fleeting thoughts rather than deep thoughts because at the end of the day i was loving the job i was doing it wasn't right. like i was You're a passive I, candidate <laughs> i was a passive candidate i wasn't unemployed i didn't need the gig and i actually i actually truly believed that they were trying to do the right thing i really genuinely believe that so 10 years 10 years you're almost at google for 10 years um what would you say was the biggest change that you helped shepherd in from a, a people process or, or culture improvement well, actually, one of the ones is something we've just been talking about. Um, two things on hiring. Having gone through this 18 people, <laughs> two continents, God knows how many months process, I walked in and went, hang on a sec. I, I absolutely get that you should hire by consensus, <clears throat> but do you really need 18 people? And one of the things that I pushed for, I can't say I owned it, but I pushed very hard for, was a review of the hiring process. Hmm. And so Google did some work with Stanford, in about 2007, I think. And we proved 
something called the wisdom of the crowds, which is actually you only need four decision makers to make the same decision 18 would make. And that changed the Google hiring process, not in terms of consensus, absolutely. But it turned, it moved it from the 18, long, 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 long Con process. Condensed it. It condensed, condensed it. it very considerably, which was essential because Google went into a massive hiring spree. And if you think every candidate, <laughs> you can't do that sort of very long, truncated, drawn out process. Tremendous. And what was what was the impetus for you to make the move to SoftBank? Why did you decide to leave Google? Was that was that a tough call or was it the right call at the right time? It was the right call at the right time. Um, you know, this is maybe something we're going to talk about, but I believe people follow people and people work in places because of people. Um, I had two line managers in a way at Google. I had my functional line manager, but I had a client and that client was a guy called Nikesh Arora and I adored working with him. Uh, he treated me with respect, has the intellect, has an intellect second to none and has an EQ second to none. And he moved to SoftBank and he called me. And so I followed and then he moved to people Palo Alto Networks people. and he called me and I followed. People, people follow, follow people. People follow people. And, and sure. it's re it's really true. I mean, because some people may look at your, at your resume and say, isn't she crazy to leave Google? Right? Is she crazy to leave Google? But you put a decade in there and you made an impact and you made a difference and you want to grow. And executives want to grow and people want to follow people that they know and trust. And that's what happens. I think also, I mean, it absolutely is what happens. The, the other thing is, is what you alluded to. You know, as much as I deeply respect loyalty, I wasn't learning anymore in Google. Google had got so big, I was doing the same thing over and over again. And actually, some of the processes in the people team had slowed very significantly. Mm. So a lot of that early work we did to change Google, to move Google, to reimagine Google, it had slowed because it was 67,000 people, I think, when I left. So I just, I, I love disrupting, I love innovating, and I love learning. And, and my learning had slowed pretty significantly. So what was the impetus behind the move to Uber? Was I mean, we're talking 2017. Were you following people again? No. Uh, Nikesh Aurora, the person I just mentioned actually took some time out so he left SoftBank so partly the motivation was Nikesh isn't here anymore um, I'm not so wedded to SoftBank as I was perhaps to Google short period of time and I was called about the Uber gig um, the reason I joined Uber is going to sound really rather strange I was approached by the board because Uber was going through some difficult cultural moments that weren't really known to anybody at that time we're talking about the Susan Fowler blog post yeah. So I joined about four or five weeks before the Susan Fowler blog post. I joined Uber for two reasons. And people find this a little hard. One, I had worked at SoftBank with a company called Ola and a company called Grab that did exactly the same ride hailing in Indonesia and in India. And I had seen how ride hailing helped people put food on the table who needed to put food on the table. I, the gig truly, economy. Mm -hmm. I truly believed in the gig economy. These were people who could not feed their families who could through the gig economy in ride hailing. And so I believed wholly in that business model as a force for good, which I know people find ironic because of the Uber tainting. The second thing was um, I actually loved the brand at the time. It was an iconic brand. It was cool. It had been, a, you know, it was, it was the darling of the valley. And that is always attractive. Brands are attractive. And when I joined Uber, I had no understanding whatsoever of the cult, let me say the cultural issues. 
And if mm. I say weeks after the Susan Fowler blog hit, and I can honestly say it was the hardest gig of my life, the hardest, but, hardest job of my life. Let, let's talk about how you, how you, you know, unpack that internally. I mean, for anyone that doesn't know, please Google, Google it. Uh, you know, there was sexual harassment claim. Uh, Travis, the CEO, stepped down. And anyone, anyone could take the time to go back and take a look at it. But you came into a shitstorm. You literally walked into a, a fire. What was the first step in, 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 in assessing and putting out the fire and rebuilding? Well, it was the, the first step actually was, was not a decision I made. Um, it was a decision the company made. Given the nature of the issues at Uber, it was determined by the leadership team in totality to bring in Eric Holder to do an external investigation into the culture. So, former um, you, uh, attorney, attorney general. Uh, yeah, attorney general. Yeah, yeah. So, so a very, very high-profile investigation to look at the issues at Uber, and then really my job was to work with that investigation and to implement the recommendations of the Holder report. Um, so, in a way. It was easier than you may think hmm. because I had the recommendations to follow. What, of course, is behind the recommendations that you don't see is all the pain in the organization. So at that time, remember, Uber was an iconic brand. And the people that had joined that company joined it because for many of them, the same reason as me, good people doing good things. And so the people who worked at that company were in pain. Suddenly... The darling of the valley had been turned into the pariah of the valley. Wow, and just so like that. It was very, very difficult. And it was almost overnight. It, it just built and was yeah. week after week after week of pain, pain, pain. And so much of my job, in addition to implementing the Holder Report, was holding the people together. Literally Let, holding the people together. So let, let's talk about that. You know, those those one-on-one -on -one conversations, those group conversations had to be difficult. Yeah. How did you reassure people that, you know, this is still a good company doing good things to help people and we can move past the indiscretions of a, of a few? It had to be terribly difficult. It was really, really hard. How really, do you still I mean, stay true to your morals and values and say, why do I want to work at a company that does this and supports it? It, it, it was really difficult. One thing that I had absolutely in my favor is that I was new and I, I had no, everybody understood I had no um, relationship with the past. You weren't protecting it. You weren't, you know, no, guarding it. You weren't keeping your mouth shut. You didn't know. No, exactly. No part of it. So, so that helped. It helped. I believe it helped the Uber employees feel that I was somebody they could trust. Look, the only way that I got through or I, if I helped anyone, I believe this is the way I helped them was deep listening right? Deep, deep, deep listening and not making assumptions and treating every single person as an individual who walked into my office. And even in a group setting, trying to make sure that every person who wanted to talk could talk. And then with as much integrity as I could possibly demonstrate, dealing with those things one by one by one by one by one. So proving that I listened, I really listened, and then I acted. And I... I don't know any other way of showing people in pain the respect that they deserve other than listen deeply, aim to understand, and then take action on their issue. And I, you know, even late in my career, because Uber's pretty late in my career, I learned, it was tough, but I learned more in that job than you can possibly imagine. What was, what was the toughest lesson? Was it how deep that you had to actually listen to affect, to, to make an impact? I think that... that I don't know whether it was the toughest lesson. The most important lesson was 
If I gave you a summary of what I think had been wrong at Uber, it was there wasn't uh, there wasn't diversity, and I don't necessarily mean this in gender and ethnicity. There wasn't diversity of the workforce, and so you know the vast majority of the population, the employees at Uber, were young people straight out of college in their first gig, doing this, you know, just going through the startup thing. Hmm. So there was no balance. There's no balance, very little balance of wisdom and pattern recognition. Diversity of mindset, perspective, experience. Yeah. It was all and kind so of my, homogenous. My biggest learning was exactly that. You know, companies, all companies need diversity in the broadest sense in order to make sure you don't get mind think and get a culture that runs away with itself in any one direction. It was a deep learning. Deep learning. The, the, way, the way I look at culture, if I could just jump in for a second here, I look at, I use a comparison of a quilt. And you think about a quilt with different fabrics, different materials, different colors, different textiles, different strength, different sheen. And each one is different. But when you put it all together and you stand back from it, that's what makes it beautiful. And that's kind of the analogy I give when I talk about culture. But let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your work with pay parity at Uber. Why, why was that so so critically important for you to focus on? Um, a, because it's the right thing to do. And B, because it was essential absolutely essential to be able to say truthfully, hand on heart, we have pay equity. I mean, think about what we'd gone through, think about what the content of the Susan Fowler blog, think about everything that was out in the media. Um, to me, actually, it, it was the most important thing to be able to say that we have audited, we have external, you know, stamp of approval, everything is equal for underrepresented minorities and women. It was also honestly a values issue for me. It was like, it, it just had to be. It was unequivocal, literally unequivocal. You're, you're a true champion. So moving on to your time currently now at Palo Alto Networks. For anybody who doesn't know, extremely innovative company. How do you describe what Palo Alto does succinctly for anyone who's not familiar? Uh, you won't be as familiar because it's an enterprise company largely, although recently we're going into, um, we're broadening. But it is the most important company I've worked for. And I mean that over and above the music business, over and above Uber and Google. Because Palo Alto Networks is a cybersecurity company, Pal I joined Palo Alto Networks, A, because of Nikesh, who I mentioned earlier, but B, because this is a company that keeps everybody safe online. And I mean everybody. So if I really sat as a mom and thought, what is the biggest issue that I want to protect my kids from? It would be making sure they're safe online. 100%. So for me, this is a company that is deep, deep, deep integrity and deeply resonates with my values. Well, wow, that's important. And it's a pretty big company too, but it's, because it's, it's, it's cybersecurity, people won't have heard of it in the same way. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about something you spent a ton of time on. What I want to talk about the future of work and, and flex work and your perspective on, I hate calling it the new normal. I hate, I hate all these kind of buzzwords out there. Me I think too. it's an evolution. I think that the pandemic forced many of us to open up our eyes from an executive level and say, hey, we trust our employees to work anywhere, yeah. you know, outcome versus output. Yes. Right. The outcome. We yes. believe in you. We trust you. But we also want to create an environment where you have choice and flexibility and options. Yes. And listen, there's some people that for nature, their job need to be in a office, a industrial factory in front of computers. But there's a lot of us that can work from home and it's opened up a lot of flexibility. I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you've just said. Um, Thank you. So, <laughs> that was easy. End of conversation. So listen, this, this is a very, very important moment in time. Um, Andreessen Horowitz have just said that this, is, this has more impact on the nature of work than the internet. Just hold that thought for a minute. 
just hold that thought for a minute. This is an absolutely seminal moment in time. And the reason is that one of the biggest paradigms that we all believed in, we all believed in it, and particularly in Silicon Valley, the paradigm was built on, Google was built on, we collaborate better when we're together. The reason you have the Google complexes outside of cities, right, like campuses, was the belief mm -hmm. that people should be together to disrupt and innovate. The pandemic smashed that belief. It basically showed us that people could be equally productive at home with some, with some provisos and in certain circumstances right. and conditions. So I'm really proud, really proud of the work we've done at Palo Alto Networks because what we said was, look, if we can smash and see that paradigm that was so deeply held, particularly here in the Valley, we can smash other things. And so what we have done is rather than do what many, com many companies have said, we'll be back in the office, we'll be back in the office, maybe three days a week, two days a week, and they keep giving you this day. Hybrid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they'll be hybrid, and they say September, then January, then September, then March, then January, whatever. Um, we have never said that. We have gone out straight off and said, actually, this has showed us that we absolutely can be flexible, that the vast majority of roles in this company not all, obviously, if you're in retail or whatever, but the vast majority of roles can be done equally well at home. And we need to shift the nature of work. It is preposterous. If you stop and think for a second, it is preposterous that we do not give our employees choice. We don't give them choice on the way they learn, what they learn. We don't give them any choice around what their benefits are, what Training. their perks mm -hmm. are. We don't give them any choice around how they take the edges of their compensation. We don't give them any choice about where they work. And we took the opportunity to go, uh, why? If you really want highly motivated people who are involved and who care about your company, treat them like adults, treat them as individuals and give them choice. So let me Huge. give you an example. Please. Um, and I'm, again, I'm super proud and passionate about this in deep. I could tell. <laughs> oh, I, I, am. I, am. Oh, I love digging into this. I We're going to spend a few minutes massive, here. Massive, massive paradigm shift. I'll give you an example. We now have a process called FlexLearn. So instead of saying every single person has to learn A, B, C, D, E, and we require you to do it. There's a bit of required. If you're in sales, you've got to know some product stuff, right? For example. But if I want there's to- There's table setters, correct. There's table setters. But if I want to, I can go into our system and I can answer some confidential questions about myself that no one else sees, right? I feel happy presenting, but I don't feel happy negotiating. Here's some things about me as, you know, psychologically, here's some things about what I do, blah. And our system will say, okay, based on the input you gave us, as an individual, we recommend this learning. Hmm. And that absolutely Customize. smashes the idea that from the age of five, you have to learn in cohorts because we are all individuals with different learning needs. You know, exactly. the only reason we've learned as cohorts is because it is cash efficient to do so. Correct. With technology, it is no longer essential. That's an so, example of the, of, of the choice that we're trying to give our teams. It's a complete shift, but let's, let's pause for a moment. I'd love to get your thoughts on who, who working remotely or work from anywhere might be hurting. In my perspective, I think that there's two, there's two groups that it's hurting. I think that younger employees yeah. who have never truly had the full onsite experience to learn and watch and observe. I mean, I, I, from my experience alone, I mean, I learned so much growing up 
in, in, in my professional career from watching senior executives, their body language, the way they present, the way they conduct themselves in the office environment. I learned a ton from that, and I can't even begin to fathom how younger employees are missing that. The second group are new employees to a company. When it comes to onboarding and really immersing themselves in culture, I'd love to get your perspective on those two groups and what you guys are doing to help, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, smooth the process. Uh, again, I wholly agree with you. So we have run, a, just to give you some data around that, we've run a couple of surveys to see who wants to be back in the office. No no pressure, who wants to be in the office? It's our new employees. And it, the, the, the data skews very heavily to new and young employees. And they want, they want visibility as well too. Of course they do, of course they do. And we had um, an on-site meeting the other day. I held an on-site meeting for some of our interns. And they, you know, I asked them what they loved most about their internship because our internship wins a lot of awards. Hmm. And 85% of kids who come on our internship, they join the company if they get an offer. It's, it's a massively successful internship program. Yeah, I'm going to park that one. They, we'll get into that. One of the things they said was, we're just loving being on site. We're just loving seeing each other and having some human touch. Of course, you're right. Yeah, we're not meant to work in silos forever or bubbles. Well, some people may be. If, if, if you're naturally introverted or depending on your job function, right, if you're more productive in certain areas, but not everybody, that's not why it's flexibility everybody. and choice. That's why flexibility and choice. Some people need to be at home for, for personal reasons. Some people want to be at home. Some people want to be in the office. Some people want to be in the office for an hour a day. I can, I'm, I'm in the office now. I come in every now and then for a few hours. Give people choice. Treat them like adults. But to your point about new starters, half of our employees have been hired since the pandemic, okay? 5,500 people. That's a large That's data That's a lot set. of people. So we had to get it right. So we, have, we moved virtually very, very quickly. And we spend, there's, there's several things that are critical success factors in my view, both for your younger people, your interns, your new grads, and your new starters. One, really thoughtful pre-boarding, preparing them for the company before they come onboarding that lasts longer than a few weeks of bloody training, that has in it managerial touch points, that has leadership touch points, that has a program, a real program of care around it. And the second thing that people take for granted but don't do, and I cannot understand why, if you are sitting at home working in isolation and you've never entered the workplace before, the one thing you have to have, you have to have, is certainty about what you have to achieve. Setting people's goals is so critical. Now, so many managers get this wrong because they think it's just about making sure people know what to do. It isn't. I can't have high self-esteem and feel good about myself if I haven't ticked off. My boss asked me to do this and I've jolly well done it. So I don't understand why something so simple so fundamental, so critical, is missed by so many managers. It is beyond lack of lack of training, lack of manager training, and and lack of understanding of the human condition. EQ, it's it's EQ, and you lack can, of EQ. And all it, you have to do is ask yourself how you feel when you don't it, know what you're doing. It's it's a, it's assumptions too, and I think it's really about setting people up for success and managing expectations. That's what it what it rolls up to. But do you think, Leanne? I'm just curious too, from that training manager perspective. Do you think because a lot of people are working from home and we're assuming that some folks are working parents, single parents, other factors, if you don't have kids that are affecting and being focused on your own career and objectives being at home versus being in the office where people are visibly in front of you, that's affecting this. So it absolutely just could. Just, just a hypothesis. Well, no, no, no. It, it's really it's something we should drill into. 
At the moment, let's be clear, we're 100% remote. A few people are coming in the office when they want, but not with their managers, just a few. So we're in a situation largely where the world's remote, so you're not going to get any bias. The minute you go to hybrid, where some people are at home and some people are at the water cooler, there is a real opportunity for bias. So we did something that I thought was um, really fascinating. We always, when we do our performance process, we always check for biases. We check for gender bias, for diversity bias, mm -hmm. for functional bias. We did a geo bias test. So, and it's a bit difficult because we're not hybrid yet, but we looked at those people that were fully remote prior to the pandemic and those people that were in office prior to the pandemic to see whether there was any geo um, uh, bias, right? We found none, which really surprised me. But I, but I want to make sure that as some people go back to the office, we continue to do that test. If two people are doing the same job, one's in the office, one's out, I want to check that bias every single six months to make yes. sure that we do not have an issue. And we also have to be really cognizant of the tips and tricks to make hybrid work. We and what are some of those? Well, we all know when we're in a meeting, right? What happens? We talk here and the people on the screen watch us and feel alienated and don't know when to interdispose because they can't see right, the body when to interject. Mm -hmm. So one of the silly little things we've done, every time you turn on your computer now in, in Palo Alto Networks, there's tips about hybrid meeting, how to involve people, how to make sure that. Um, and we will train on this sort of stuff. You have to. So what are some of these tricks? Oh, they're the obvious ones, right? Go around the room, make sure that the people on no, the video are yeah. absent. You know, there's, there's the icebreaker stuff, of course. But during, I would say, actually, it's more important when you're discussing fundamental business strategy. Make sure hmm. you go to the people on the video first or make sure at least you go to everybody. Give Simple everybody things. voice. Simple when they things. can't hear, a, a little silly tip, repeat a lot of stuff. But, you know, what? there's loads of tips and tricks, <laughs> right? Do you think do you think do you think working parents this is something that's kind of been going around in my head a little bit just from personal observation with with ourselves, my wife and I and my friends uh, working parents? Do you think that working parents are at a disadvantage during the pandemic? Yeah. Uh, let me let me caveat that. I think it's a great everybody loves working from home because we have more time with our kids. We're not commuting. We're able to have dinner. But we're talking about the daytime where we're distracted. Some of us, you know, maybe the kitchen table is the only place we could work and we're hunched over. And job performance is mindful. We're mindful of that, you know, junior coming up behind us, potentially taking our job who doesn't have the daily distractions. Oh, there's no question. So there's literally no question. During the pandemic, you know, this is this is not data led. I can't give you numerics, but I can certainly give you my sense. The Please. people the people that I talk to that burst into tears are working parents. Because they are literally, I mean, I've had so many meetings with people. There's no I, separation of church and state. It's so hard. But again, a tip and trick. You know, I will, I'll tell you just a very, very short story. We were Please. in an all hands, every single person in the whole company invited. And the CEO is talking and basically giving us some big, I think maybe some strategy in point. His little boy who's five walked in and went, Daddy, Daddy, my finger hurts. Daddy, my finger hurts. It's bleeding. Will you suck it? And that CEO became more human to every single person in the totality of the organization in that minute. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing is, for goodness sake, 
Does it matter if your kid walks in? Does it matter if they sit on your lap? Does it matter if the dog barks? Of course it doesn't. We have to be tolerant of all this stuff and actually not just be tolerant, but embrace it. I mean, I can't tell you how many children I've spoken to on Zoom. <laughs> like, it's, fabulous. It's it's such a good point, Leanne. I mean, it's really broken down the walls of, of separating. Like, listen, I mean, I think there's, there's a value to having your you want to show up as your whole self to work, but I also think there's a lot that people should and and keep personal. But I think that's really blending and just make and I think it's helping everyone's everyone's EQ there. So let, let's shift gears here and I want to talk about the hiring process quickly. Um, I mean, you go on LinkedIn for, for, for three minutes and all you see is our candidates just hurting. The process is broken. So many companies with, with, with ghosting and not getting back to candidates and long winded interview processes and broken decision processes. Is it repairable? And what can we do? You know, it's interesting. Um, it amazes me how few, and I learned this at Google, by the way, um, how few companies really understand the importance of the candidate experience. You know, I say to my, my talent acquisition team all the time, it is your brand you're messing around with. You leave one candidate in the lurch, you upset somebody by not getting back to them. And by the way, one of the things that is very problematic that we need to understand, the vast majority of talent acquisition teams run partially contractor workforce, partially full time. For larger organizations. For yes. larger organizations. So you constantly have this need to help your contractors understand your culture and your approach. But I haven't worked for a company that doesn't have the candidate experience go south at some point. So it's by, by nature. It's gonna it's gonna break when someone keeps, takes their eyes off the wheel. It does, and it's totally hands off the wheel. Mm -hmm. So, so what I do now, or, or what my vice president of what the vice president of talent acquisition does, we have a scorecard for our recruiters, and part of that scorecard is candidate experience. We do not want to hear through Glassdoor or through whatever that you did not go back to a candidate because it's damn right rude. Don't do it. It's just a human thing, and I, and I truly truly believe this. Two things. One. The companies that make hiring, and that includes retention, attrition, it's going to happen every company, top priority, and they invest dollars into it to ensure they have the people and the tech resources, and the ones that truly understand that your recruiters are the first contact point with any new employee, they are your brand ambassadors. Oh, absolutely. They need to tell your story. I mean, that's what I do for my business. When I talk to clients, it's like, I'm going to represent your brand. I am a contractor. You want somebody who's going to come in and tell the Palo Alto story and be able to represent and not just throw a shit resume at the wall and see what sticks. Yes. But the companies that truly understand this are the ones that are going to be successful. And and just because a, a company, and I'd love to get your point, they say, well, oh, talent, HR, they're not revenue generators. They're not cost. They're they're not. There's no ROI. And I go, you're, you're backwards. You don't even understand that your people are your ROI. How do you not prioritize and put resources? So, so I, I've, I've never worked for a company and I never would that has that viewpoint because it is so inanely stupid. So let me, let me give you um, just, just one tiny little point. Um, when I joined Palo Alto, so when Nikesh joined Palo Alto Networks, the, the, the CEO, I was his first hire. And I was his first hire not for any other reason than he knows the most important thing is how you look after your people. Everything else is secondary. Anyone who does not get that Honestly, I mean, they're barking bonkers. You can't have customers without the people that, that are in your organization. Anything. You can't have anything. Yeah. You can't have good products. You can't have good customer relationships. You can't sell your product. Nothing. No, it's ridiculous. I, I love to ask this question to senior people, leaders like yourself. 
it, when you interview, I mean, we're assuming by the time at this stage in your career, when someone gets to you, they've already been vetted from, from the skill set perspective. How do you assess character in a short amount of time? Because okay. listen, character spent over time, right? To really assess them. But what are some of those telltale signs and questions to know that you're going to make a decision to hire someone who's, who's good inside? Yes, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. It's a million dollar question. Uh, firstly and foremostly, anybody senior at this company, I interview and I interview them for exactly that. I'm looking for their value set and whether they're accretive to our culture. That's what I do when it comes to, to talent acquisition. I have um, a strong belief. There is no point in having a question that isn't behaviorally based. I want to know what do you do, right? What did you do? Because if I ask a question about what do you think, right? Anybody knows how to answer that well. But I always ask questions about tell me a time when. Okay, so I mentioned it earlier. Tell me a time when you screwed up. Give me an Why example. was it a screw up? What did that do to your value set? I also ask the values questions like Tell me someone you've worked with that you really didn't gel with. What was it about that person? Because it tells you their value set of what they don't I like. love this. And then tell me about somebody you work with that you really love. What was it about that person you love that gives you people's values without you having to go, what are your values? So oh, you It's can, a terrible question. It's almost like, tell me about yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, like, it's inane. So always tell me about what you did or why you think something. And I drill very deeply. Um, I always ask the question too, what are you most proud of? What did you do? And I drill deep down into why was it successful? What was it you loved about it? What was it that made you feel that your self-esteem? Because all of that tells you what the person is, tells you whether they're competitive or whether they really are a complete finisher or whether they're financially oriented. It tells you so much. But I, I think having maybe half a dozen questions that you consistently ask, so that, and, and keep the questions consistent because then you can see right. the range. Because you need to have accurate measurement across yeah. different candidates. You, you get a range um, that are all around what did you do or what did you feel and why? How are you able to separate if someone's values may still be positive, good values, but maybe they don't align with your actual values? Because you have to take, you, I, can't, I can't interview for my values. I have to interview for the company values. How do you keep that top of mind for yourself? How do you how do you keep disciplined on that? Um, it's really tough. That, I mean, that's that's a really nice question because you know so many example, biases in the interview process. So many biases. People sure. may not like what you're wearing. The shirt. You may not like the fact I'm wearing a hat. Right. You have no idea what people are thinking. It's really true. You know. I mean, I I I have a, a bias that I have to be very 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 conscious of every time I see a resume or a, or a, a profile. If I see that that person does charitable work. I want to like that resume. I want to. And I have to go, Leanne, that's your bias. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You so can't you judge. Be, you can't be against somebody who doesn't do charity work. Or who doesn't put it on the resume. Someone might do so much <laughs> charity work, but not put it on their resume, right? Here's so, a little tip for anyone who's interviewing in Palo Alto. Sure. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's so, in, it's so interesting, too, because unconscious bias is, is, we all have them. And I want everyone to understand that it doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't automatically go to the far spectrum of being a racist or whatever. We all have unconscious biases by the way we're brought up environmentally, internally, externally. Yes. And if you're in talent, if you're a hiring manager, if you're at any point in the decision process, the first step is to know what your unconscious biases are and recognize them. And I've done a lot of work as a recruiter through data, through hardcore data in one of the companies that I work with. They said, here's everyone that's been put in front of you, every resume that you reviewed. Now let's break down where those, where you, where you rejected somebody or move them forward. And I learned what my biases were, and it was a lot of name recognition assumptions that I worked hard on, and I'm honest and open about that. And it was subconscious. 
And you have to, in talent and people, you have to have that self-awareness and be okay to say, you know what? These are my biases. As long as I'm aware of them, I could recognize them and course correct. It, it's, it's what you said is so wise. Um, I loved that you said everybody has unconscious bias. What we have to do is take is f exactly what you said. Make that unconscious conscious. Conscious. So that we can consciously disregard it. I love it. And, and I wanna, everybody does. Thank you. This is a fantastic conversation. I want to bring it home here. But one thing I want to talk about that I made a note of, internships, real quick. Thoughts on unpaid internships. Is that a thing in the past? I mean, I had plenty of internships when I was younger that were unpaid. And then as I moved up, some of them were. And I'm looking back on it. I'm like, I don't even care that some of them were unpaid because I learned so much and got great experience. But times are changing, right? Um, I strongly believe they have to be paid. And let me tell you why. Uh, I absolutely come from a working class background and would never have been able ever to have an unpaid in internship. You will not get diversity of socioeconomic positioning unless you have paid internships. Spot on. Full stop. Full stop. Full stop. I do not believe in unpaid internships. Tremendous. So let, let's bring it home here. Um, Leanne, what is the greatest single piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? I don't know whether I received this advice or whether I learned it at Uber. So I can't tell you whether I received it, but I learned it. Um, and I've learned it and no, and I've learned it for my own kids as well. Actually, one of my, both of my kids are unbelievably naturally kind. They're kind spirited and they assume good intent. And I don't know why they do that. Cause I don't know that they got it from me, but I've watched them and I've watched what I, had to do at Uber particularly. So two things, assume good intent. I, I hate politics. I hate people that assume the worst of, you know, th you know, this is my bias. People who assume the worst of others, that ain't good. Assume the best. If someone's acting like a jerk, find the reason why. Very rarely are people bad people, very rarely, very rarely. So assume good intent and be as kind as you possibly can. And, and honestly, I believe I learned it too late in my career and I pass it on every single intern that we talk to, every single person that comes to Palo Alto Networks. Kindness is the one thing, the one thing that will differentiate this company, I believe, from others. I love it. What would you say your superpower is? What makes you, you know, who you are and shine? Maybe it's something that you just have just in, in spades that makes you really who you are. Um, what is that superpower? I mean, could you fly? <laughs> I, I, I think what people would say that know me, because I do want to be humble, um, I'm pretty resilient. I mean, genuinely, you know, and, and, and I don't say that with any arrogance, because I often think that's something that's inherited and something that's innate rather than something you can build it. But I'm just super, super lucky that, you know, you take the knocks, you jump up. That's, yeah, exactly. that's probably it, right? Because we all have so many knocks all the bloody time. Yeah, we, we do. And and last but not least, you know, you look back on, on your life and your career and you look back at those hard times. You look back at those points where you were in a tough spot, you know, working your way through the those difficult conversations at Uber. And you think about those difficult times in your life and you had to reach down and dig deep and harness that inner tenacity to pull yourself up you and to. forward. And you on the other side of that, life, right? You just have right? to live your life. Right. And on the, on the other side of that, Leanne, 
where you're sitting now and you're affecting so much good change and you're affecting people's lives in such a positive way and leading tremendous companies, being a great mom, and you want to show gratitude. What keeps you in focus? What is your compass? Leanne Hornsey, what is your North Star in life? Um, I think my North Star is to be kind. I don't, don't know if there's any more I can say. Be as it. kind as I possibly can. That's perfect. I love it. And let's pause for a moment. And I want to thank you for, for joining me on this incredible conversation. We, I think I just interviewed your whole CV. I mean, I, I think, think this is, a, I think this is, a, I think this is how <laughs> I would do it. Um, you're hired. I mean, you could, you could lead NHP talent group. She's going from Palo Alto to my little three person shop consultancy here. Tremendous hire. We're pleased to make this announcement that we're making you an offer. I don't know if we could pay Palo Alto rates there, but uh, we'll try. Leanne, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, hang with me for a moment here when I sign off. But where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? LinkedIn, easy. Just, you know, look Al Hornsey at Palo Alto Networks. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I, I do try to be as respectful as I possibly can, given the time constraints. <laughs> Good old Linky Dinky. Um, Linky Dinky. <laughs> Leanne, hang with me for one moment here. I want to continue chatting for a second here. And everyone listening, this has been what, what I call the gold. These are the golden episodes. These are the ones that have, you know, not only just incredible conversations, but so much to learn and unpack. And, and if you could pull little tidbits here and there and apply that to your practice, to your business, to your company and your culture, it's all worth it. And this is why I want to do it. Leanne, I want to thank you so much for joining me and everyone listening at home. Thank you for spending the last 52 minutes and 12 seconds with Leanne and I. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Remember, look out for one another, take care of each other, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepodcast.com.